0: Okay, church, if you could please open up to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5. We're going to continue in our study of this book this morning. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, I want to talk about you know, baseball and softball season has started, and so Gabriel has been playing T ball. That's a fun thing to watch. Uh, yeah, mm hmm. <laughs> There are some days that just go really well. You're like, oh, that's great. And then there's some days where it's, how many blades of grass can I pick up in between innings, you know, out there on the field? Um, Yes, Gabriel loves playing baseball. He's getting better at it. But anyway, so as I'm out there watching, I notice in the stands there's a couple of signs up. One of the signs says something to the effect of... uh, let the coach handle it, or something like that. Like, let the coach coach him. Kind of implying that parents want to kind of coach from the stands. If you want to see this in action, go to a t-ball game. Every parent, when their kids up, they're like, okay, you're going to hit the ball, you're going to run. Don't stop. Ball gets hit. Okay, run. Now, Now stop. Go. And the coach is also trying to communicate to the player what to do, so you know it's a very intimidating experience. Well, there's another sign up, and this sign details the types of behavior that are unacceptable out at the ball fields. We will not tolerate, and then it has a list of the items. I don't have it itemized here, but foul language, yelling or screaming, berating the umpire, I'm sure, are all on the list. Put simply... If you're not going to conduct yourself in these ways, you ain't got to go home, but you can't stay here. We're not going to tolerate that here because that's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to create a family-friendly atmosphere where families can come together and put their little kids out there and watch them play a game and get better. That's the whole point of it. And so these policies exist also for some businesses, There's an expectation of decorum or common decency when you go in to spend your money there. And for the most part, this is what we all want, right? We want to be able to go to a ball field and enjoy a game without the guy next to me being blue in the face, blowing my eardrum out, yelling at the umpire for a call really that he actually made right. I think this guy maybe just saw it wrong this time. Not always, but sometimes. So this is what we want. We want order and decency in these things. Well, God has designed the church similarly. There are certain expectations within the church. There is grace in the church, but grace does not eliminate expectation, or else we should just throw this book out the window once we come to accept it as true. Grace does not eliminate expectation. It just finds opportunity to forgive when that expectation is not met, but the expectation is still there. Even if it's disregarded or violated in a major way, we are to exercise a biblical practice that we call church discipline. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So our main idea, church discipline demonstrates the message and goodness of the gospel. In the way that a church exercises or fails to exercise church discipline, The church is communicating a truth about the gospel either way, whether they choose to engage or they don't. They're communicating something. So to give you some context this morning before we break this down, we just finished Paul's first topic in Corinthians on division. There's a number of issues he's going to address, but he takes that one first, I believe, because it's the most important, unhealthy division within the church their division over preferences exposed their spiritual immaturity. We see that the church's leaders are to focus on being faithful stewards, not on trying to attract and appease crowds. Therefore, they shouldn't be judged by the latter goal, but by the former. And Paul finished his discussion on division by looking at the heart of the Corinthian division prideful arrogance as opposed to humble biblical dependence. The scriptures, in short, are to guide our evaluation of our leaders. So the scriptures lay a foundation for unity, and when other standards become the measuring rod, that's when division erupts, and Paul is addressing the Corinthians to avoid that. Now we're entering Paul's next topic, immorality in the church. So first we had division, now we're approaching immorality. And whereas Paul just finished making a case against unhealthy division, Paul is now going to make the case for healthy division. So what we're going to see is that it's not necessarily division in and of itself that is the evil to avoid, but it's a type of division. And that's what we'll see this morning. So hopefully you're there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to ask everyone to stand together as we read from God's holy word just as a physical posture to affirm what we know to be true, that this is the divine, inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. O Holy Spirit, would you please reveal to us the truth of your word in a powerful way that changes and affects us at the deepest part of who we are that we might be further conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So today's passage is traditionally used to explain church discipline. There's this passage here, and then there's Matthew 18. Those are both famous chapters of Scripture that explain corrective church discipline. We just recently examined this text lightly and some implications from it during our Sunday night Bible study, if you didn't see that and you want to know a little bit more about what we're going to talk about, I went into detail on that, and you can find it online on the church website, just fbcgeno.com. You go to media, go to sermons and messages, and you can scroll down and find it there, Corrective Church Discipline. I would challenge you to go and watch that if you'd like a little more detailed analysis of some of these things. This morning, I at least want us to have that context in mind as we work through the text. As we begin to discuss what healthy division looks like, one of the major answers is church discipline. We saw unhealthy division, now we're going to see Paul command division through church discipline. Sometimes division is bad, but sometimes it is good and necessary for the protection of the gospel and the church. And if you want an example of this in real life, think about whenever we have to have surgery and have to have an amputation. Sometimes it is necessary for something to be divided from us or removed from within us so that we might be healthy. And it's the same thing with the church. This morning our text is going to show us three reasons that church discipline is a healthy and necessary form of division. I'm going to go ahead and give you the first one. Church discipline is a healthy form of division because, number one, it protects a church's gospel witness. Church discipline protects a church's gospel witness. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is, a sexual, there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you, So Paul hears about the sexual immorality through a report. What this means is that he wasn't there at the church, saw the act in person, and said, oh, we need to address this. He's heard about it from where he is. The report has spread. Someone has come to him. People disagree on exactly who it was, but the point still remains the same. That to a degree, what was going on in the Corinthian church was being made known outside of the church. And this is true to a degree of all churches. Even our church here in Gina, or every other church in the area. We all know generally things that go on in all these churches. Why? Because to a degree, the world has a watching eye on the church. And do you know what the world is watching for? Contradiction. Error. The world is looking for some thing that can be used to tear Christianity down. And the reason why is because if the world can find these things, the world can continue to justify its continued unbelief. Why should I believe something that looks like it's having no effect on that church across the street? They're just as bad as I am. The rates of divorce, the rates of adultery, the rates of pornography, viewing... Are just the same in that building as it is outside the building. So, what's the big deal? That's what the world desires to see. The world does not want the gospel to be true. And it's not necessarily because they hate everything about the gospel. There's kind of a revival of spiritu- uh, spiritism in our culture. This spiritual movement that says, well, I think, you know, atheism, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. I, you know, I'm just a spiritual person. And we have these spiritual practices. There's something within us that craves the divine. And the world knows it. So it's not just that aspect of the gospel that there's a supreme, divine, spiritual being. They're not opposed to the idea of acting in love towards others. What they're opposed to is having to abandon their sinful way of life. By the way, this is what we find ourselves opposed to. There's this battle within us. The flesh versus the spirit, where our flesh is pulling us away from the gospel, and the Holy Spirit within us us is pulling us towards the gospel. So we're constantly in tension within ourselves. We have to recognize and remember, the gospel calls us away from sin, not towards it. And that's why Paul's report here that he's heard is so shocking. He says it's actually reported That there's sexual immorality going on in your church that not even the unbelievers do. They don't even do that. And you're doing it. And you're arrogant. You ought to be mourning, but you're proud. It's almost like, look what we can do. We're forgiven and we can do whatever we want. And it's shocking. It should be shocking. The sin isn't tolerated in the world, but it's present in God's church as if it's not a big deal. Well, it should be a big deal. What we notice about the sin here in these verses is that it is outward, significant, and unrepentant. It is a visible sin that we can see and put our finger on. You did this, I saw it. It's not an invisible sin of the mind where we have greed creeping in the back corners of our brain and no one ever sees it. It was outward, visible. It was significant. Paul is shocked that it's being engaged in in the church, and it is unrepentant. There is no conviction about it. When a church tolerates this type of sin within itself, the church sends a number of messages to the watching world. Hey world, this is what our God is like. Or Christians are free to sin because they're forgiven. You may not believe that, but that's what you're communicating in the moment. Or the gospel doesn't require you to abandon your life of sin. Or you should repent from your sin, but I don't have to. These are the things we communicate. This is why the world can so easily point to the church and say, hypocrite, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. In part, it's because our churches have largely abandoned the practice of church discipline. We tell the world that their sin is so heinous, but then we allow that same sin to dwell within our walls and never say anything about it. It's because we tolerate what God refuses to tolerate. Maybe not in theory, but in practice. We say things like, sin is disgusting, but then we engage in it ourselves. And when someone confronts us, we get mad and say, stop judging me. By following Paul's instructions here to remove the guilty party from among them, the church's gospel witness is being protected. Here in the text, God gives us a significant reason why we don't treat sin more seriously in the church. Look at verse 2. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? We don't treat sin more seriously in the church because we do not mourn over our sin. We've become so accepting of the fact that we're sinners we're saved sinners. We're forgiven sinners. We are sanctified sinners. We are being sanctified. But in our fight in sanctification, we will not achieve perfection until we die and are with the Lord. So we've accepted the idea that we're sinners so much so that we stop mourning as much over our sin. Or we just blind ourselves to it and we think that we don't have sin like the rest of these people do. We point out sin in others and refuse to recognize that when we have one finger pointed out we got three pointed back at us we've become jaded to our sin and we have stopped mourning over it the way we ought we don't call it out or rid ourselves of it because we really don't hate it as much as we should a famous example of this is proverbs 26:22 Speaking about gossip and slander, sins of the tongue, it says, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. You would expect the Proverbs, in all their wisdom, to say, The words of a whisperer are dangerous. Avoid them, my son. And that's kind of what he's saying here, but he's giving a different perspective. He's explaining it's hard to avoid these things because you like it. It's delicious. When we hear that gossip, it is so sweet. And we take it in and it goes down within us, and then it comes back out later. It's tempting. Why is gossip so rampant? Because it's like eating dessert. We just made homemade ice cream. I say we, my wife made homemade ice cream. I get to just enjoy it. And it's so hard when you're eating. You get close to the end. It's just so good. Like, ah. I kind of want another scoop. <laughs> you just find yourself going back again and again. That's how sin is. Hebrews 11:25, we read about Moses that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Another translation uses the phrase, the sin that is pleasing for a season. Make no mistake, sin is pleasing for a season. Students, you're going to see this when you leave our church and go off into college. You are going to be bombarded with the worldview that tells you the things that your church told you was so bad isn't really that bad. And you're going to be tempted to take a taste and you're probably going to like what you taste. That is the deceptiveness of sin. And once it has you in its clutches, it does not let go easily. I can speak from experience. My wife can speak from experience. All of us adults can speak from experience. This is why sin gets so rampant in our churches. We do not mourn as we ought to. This is how it is with most of our unrepentant sin. We continue in it because we're not really ready to go to war against it. And we aren't ready to go to war against it because we really don't want it to die. Not quite yet. The gospel is a call to mourn over our sin so that we might repent and turn to God. That's the whole message of the gospel. You can be saved from your sin. So when we refuse to divide from our sin in the church, we're communicating the opposite of that message. The gospel message is being distorted. It's our sin that nailed and held our Savior to the tree. When you sin, just imagine each hit of that hammer driving that nail into our Lord. We're not going to convince the world to mourn over sin that we ourselves delight in. We must not tolerate what God abhors. That's number one. Number two, church discipline protects individuals from false assurance. Protects individuals from false assurance. I'm going to pick back up in verse three. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present... I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. These verses, it's important to note, are given in the context of a gathered assembly. He says, I'm absent in body, but I'm present in spirit. And whenever you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus my spirit is present with you. You know what the modern word is for this gathered assembly in the name of the Lord Jesus? Church. That's what we're doing right now. This is church in the Bible. The believers are ga- we are gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what he's talking about here in verse 4. Someone cannot be removed, verse 2, if there is not a group to be removed from. So now, not only do we have church, we have church membership in the Bible. Not that phrase, but the idea is right here in the text. The Bible's expectation for all Christians is that they would be a part of a church. The whole passage is proof that church membership is not just biblical, but it's expected. You are to be a part of a body. So this is the context within which corrective church discipline is supposed to happen. But many churches, as I've said, are shying away from this. Again, in practice more than in theory. You look at most of the church's bylaws, they include a section on church discipline. But then it just so happens that we never have to practice it. One reason that many churches are shying away is because of the dreaded J word. Judgmental. We do not want to be judgmental. After all, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Now, if you take this single verse out of context, it would appear to suggest that we should never, ever make any judgment. Period. Was that broccoli good? I can't judge. (laughs) Right? Right? We have to look at the surrounding words to say, what does he mean when he says don't judge? Is it don't ever make a moral judgment? Is it don't make a final condemnation judgment? Is it don't make general judgments? If you continue to look at the surrounding teaching in the rest of the scriptures, you'll see that this, that, that isn't all judgment that is being restricted here. Rather, it is the prideful judgment that removes self from scrutiny while scrutinizing everybody and everything else. You were so quick to try to get the speck out of your brother's eye, but you were ignoring the log or the plank in your own eye. He says remove that first, then you'll be able to to see clearly to do what? To remove your brother's speck. So it is not all judgment that is condemned. Look at the words of Paul. He says in verse 3, I have already pronounced judgment. So Jesus, don't pronounce judgment. Paul, I pronounced judgment. It is a certain type of judgment that we are being warned against. But because we've taken judgment and applied it across the board, now we have eliminated church discipline because that is a form of judgment. What we see in our passage today is that the church has the power and authority of Jesus to condemn what he condemns and honor what he honors. This is proper judgment. Jesus is the judge. We cannot make a judgment that Jesus has not made as judge because then we are becoming judge. That's the whole point. We are simply communicating the judgment that he's already made. And if you look in our text here, Paul says in verse 4, When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, and he gives this comma, With the power of our Lord Jesus, comma, you are to deliver this man to Satan. That is an authoritative delivering of the person. You were caught in sin, so we will remove you from our official gathering in hopes that you might repent. We want you to know that you are not one of us. We've made an agreement with one another to live in a certain way, to pursue certain things, but you have blatantly, visibly, seriously, unrepentantly denied those things. And we've come to you and said turn please. And you've said no. So you've demonstrated I don't really want to be a part of you. Therefore there is removal through church discipline. Initially we might fear this sort of judgment or accountability. But isn't this actually what we all genuinely want? Think about it for a moment. If you or I, are guilty of outward, significant, unrepentant sin, don't you want someone to point that out to you? So that you might turn from it? If you're a Christian, the answer should be a resounding yes. If I'm guilty of blatant, visible, unrepentant sin, I want someone to communicate that to me. Why? Because I'm a Christian. I have committed to turn from sin. If you're not a Christian, understandably, the answer should be no here. No, I don't want someone to point out my sin. Stop talking about sin. I don't like that. And therein lies the whole point of church discipline. It removes people from membership who are potentially Unsaved or unregenerate, non believers. On paper, they're a member. On paper, I'm a Christian. But in reality, their life is demonstrating I don't really know Jesus. So church discipline seeks to say, We don't think that you love Jesus. We don't think that you know Jesus. We don't think that you are saved. We want you to turn from your sin. So Paul says, Hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The point isn't to shame sinners. The point is to expose that you might be in danger of ultimate condemnation. We think it's possible you don't know Jesus, and we want you to know Jesus. The hope is that this individual might go back out into the world, realize the error of his or her ways, and then finally truly repent and be saved. By not exercising church discipline when we're supposed to, we are allowing some to remain assured of a salvation that they do not actually possess. We're saying, ah, it's okay. That's okay. You can still be a Christian and do that. That's okay. And the result is that that person's spirit will not be saved in the day of the Lord, partly because their church affirmed their sin their entire lives. Too many Christians are operating on a false assurance when it comes to salvation. Well, I'm sure I'm saved because I was baptized, I signed a card, I said a prayer. But that's not how the Bible speaks about assurance. In the book of 1 John, chapter 1, and a little bit in chapter 2 as well, True assurance comes from the one who is following after Jesus. Not perfectly, but that general direction of life is towards the Lord. And when things come to light, when sin comes to light, we say, oh, I need to reject that. And we begin to engage our sin in battle. That's the assurance that we need. That's what reminds us and shows us and affirms, you know the Lord. It's not... Well, you know, I'm living in sin, but I said a prayer a long time ago, so I know I'm saved. I just need to get my act together and start acting right. Really, what ends up happening is this person is trusting in themselves to save themselves. It's a self-righteousness. One of the ways that we are brought to our senses, according to Scripture, is by the collective judgment of the church. Now the church does not have the authority or the power to save or to condemn anyone. You were not saved, you were not condemned because the church welcomes you into membership or removes you from membership. You can be welcomed into membership and be saved or be not saved. You can be removed from membership and either be saved or not saved. The church doesn't have the authority or the power to save or condemn, but the church does have the power and the authority to attest to someone's salvation. And that is what we call church membership or church discipline. We are saying, yes, we attest to your salvation. We hear your profession. We see the way that you're lit. We think that you're a Christian. You appear to be a Christian as the Bible describes it. Or we say, you don't appear to be a Christian because we've approached you about this significant, outward, unrepentant sin over and over, and you're not turning. Why aren't you turning? It's clear. Here it is in the Bible. Why don't you turn? We have to believe it's because you're probably not a Christian. The analogy I've used on Sunday nights is that being a church member is like being a card carrying Christian. By removing someone's card, you're not saying you're not saved. Rather, you're saying I can no longer attest to your salvation. I can no longer confirm that. The hope is that if this person is a believer, he or she will repent and be restored. And if this person is not a believer, that he or she will continue, will not continue to believe a lie that that person will recognize his or her lostness and turn to the Lord. That's number two. Here's our last one this morning. Number three, church discipline protects a church from worldly influence. Church discipline protects a church from worldly influence. Verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here, Paul falls back on imagery that would have been instantly familiar with many of them leaven and dough and Passover. You don't have to be a Jew or a chef to know how this works. Leaven, when you work it into a dough, spreads throughout the dough so that when you bake it, it rises. That's how it works. The leaven in this analogy represents sin. Look at verse 8 here. There's the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, and then the unleavened bread here represents what is pure, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul is arguing that if the leaven is worked into the dough and allowed to stay there, it's going to spread. If you want another example of this, Galatians 5.9, you can write that down, Galatians 5.9, go look at it later. He's talking about false beliefs in that moment, but also I would argue about sinfulness. He tells them that in reality, you are unleavened. Therefore, you need to remove the leaven from within you because you're unleavened. You are pure. You're a Christian. You're saved from your sin. Therefore, remove those elements of sin from within you that are still present and cast it aside so that you can look like God has already proclaimed what like God has already proclaimed you to be. Paul intends this to describe churches. Therefore, he clarifies in the next verses. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter, this is his first letter that we don't have, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone, key phrase here, who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The point isn't just to protect Christians from sinners. If that was the case, Christians would have to leave the world We saw this big monastic movement where these Christians basically became monks and said, I'm going to remove myself from all the evils of the world and be by myself and be spiritual and be a Christian. That is not what the scriptures call for here. Christians can and should spend time with and be around other sinners. When you go to work, when you go to school, when you go out and go shopping, uh, we are going to engage sinners all the time. Our mentality should not be, oh, that guy looks weird. Yep, I can tell I don't agree with him on things, and avoid. That's not the intent here. The point is to protect the church from the influence of the world within When the church is filled with members who are living in outward, significant, unrepentant sin, Christians will begin to replicate that bad behavior. Just like leaven spreads throughout the bread, those sinful tendencies will spread throughout the church like a virus. So the instruction is to have it removed. Paul references this idea later in the book. In chapter 15, verses 33 and 34, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. Without church discipline, the sinful influences of the world enter the church to cause Christians to trip and to stumble. So it ought to be removed from your midst. Paul's whole point with all of this is that while division can be unhealthy and destructive, it can also be healthy and protective. Church discipline is a good and necessary division that separates those who profess and follow Christ and truly struggle to follow him And the type of Christian that is explained here in verse 11, who bears the name of brother and is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. That's the point. It is to make a distinction between those who say only and in those who are. That's the point. In the words of Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We will not be as effective as we could be in getting the gospel message out if we are tolerant of what should be abhorrent within the church. If we want to effectively, faithfully proclaim the gospel, we must live as though we believe sin is wicked and destructive. We must live as though we believe Jesus died to save us from the penalty and the power of our sin. We must live as though Jesus calls us to repent from our sin. We must act in the best interest of the health of the church in calling out outward, significant, unrepentant sin. So church, may we protect one another from the harmful effects of sin by refusing to tolerate it within our church, because we belong to Christ who died to save us from it. Amen.